Walking away from Arcadia, and this is Simon Eichhornchen. Today, we are going to do a brief little discussion about what critique is and what its purpose is in the context of our discussions about role-playing games, because not everybody has the same understanding of what critique is and the role it plays in both art and professional settings. And this is also going to serve as sort of a, an opening to a series of book review episodes that we're going to be releasing. The episodes are going to pair with our discussion of the canon, thought, letting people know, hey, all these books that we used for sources, are they worth picking up while you're trying to traverse the canon would be worthwhile. And we realized through a, a number of conversations that what people look for in role-playing games and how people view critique, especially in role-playing game spheres, seems to be varied. <laughs> so we wanted to make sure that anyone who chose to listen to our review episodes knew where we were coming from. So, And if they wanted to duck out. <laughs> choosing to duck out is, is a perfectly legitimate thing to do. So Simon, how do you view critique generally and then specifically how do you think it applies to a role-playing game product? I come at the media that I choose to consume in a way that limits the number of people I can go to movies with because my undergrad was in English Lit and I had a fair number of comp and workshop classes. And in order to get through those, you have to very quickly learn whose opinions are useful and in what context they're useful. When I'm reading like a role-playing text, it's a lot like reading a comic book for me. Like Not everybody's going to think that's literature, but it is. Everything is text. Everything that has any value is worth improving upon. And in order to improve upon something, you have to be able to identify what works and what isn't working. That's where criticism comes in. Criticism is, in this context, the study of whether or not a piece of writing is achieving what the author thinks its goal is. There is a discussion to be had about whether or not authorial intent matters at all, but usually to me it does. Where are you coming from, and what sort of big-picture role does criticism in this context fill for you, Victor? Yeah, I have a similar early background, but my background takes a hard left turn away from what you just described at one point. When I was in fourth grade, my father started an MFA program in theater and drama to be a director. I don't know how many people out there have close family members who are directors specifically, but no one has a critical eye like the director, and they have to if they're going to produce anything worth watching. But as a result, 
I didn't get to consume media uncritically ever. <laughs> My mother also had a theater degree. And then when I went to college in my endeavor to get away from critique, I got a fine arts degree, which did not get me away from critique. You, you don't know whether or not your ego can survive a beating until you've been through a fine arts class. Picking apart every single little thing is something I can't stop myself from doing. I have had many, many, many friends who have told me that they don't really like consuming media with me for that reason. I have a handful of friends that really do like getting into the sorts of conversations I like to have, but I have to filter that out. Then I moved into software development. For me, a role-playing game is one part literature. And again, pure literature. I, I don't believe in high art, low art. Everything is a media of creation. And the instant you exempt something from whatever your concept of what high art is, the instant you are intrinsically diminishing it, I hate that. I bring the same level of expectation to a role-playing game book that I bring to a Kenneth Brenna film, that I bring to a Marvel film, you know, depending on what aspect I'm looking at it. And yes, that makes reading role-playing books a little bit difficult for me sometimes, but it's not a thing I can turn off. They're one part literature and they're one part product. Like I work in product development. I live in user stories. I live in, this is a feature. This is how you're going to use this as a product. So they are a technical construction meant to facilitate a technical process at a table intertwined with literature. And I have close to a decade in QA under my belt right now. QA means quality assurance. So anything technical in the book and that can be rules, that can be the way rules are designed to emulate theme, that can just be the consistency of theme to create a setting that is invocable in a consistent way by your players at a table. I look at them all as an execution of user stories at various levels of success. And I think that you have to look at a product that way if you want to be able to make your next product better. Knowing that that's kind of the perspective on how we look at a book or how, how I look at a book or how you do, what in particular do you classify as quality when you pick up a role-playing game book? When I pick up a role-playing game book, there are a lot of different things that go into the experience of, you know, book from the like weirdly tome like design they all seem to follow i am 100% convinced is a feature just one i don't get down to the art and then specifically into like layout and writing and how intent comes across because there are a different collection of voices involved in a role playing book the two and a half big ones for World of Darkness books tend to be narrative. Those are the flavor pieces that open, sometimes close books, sometimes they're at the beginnings of chapters. There's in-universe voice. War and Concordia was big on that one. There are lots of World of Darkness books that are big on that one. That's the one where it's very clear that the words on the page are meant to be a specific person in the universe telling you something and then there's 
manual voice where you are getting an explanation of how something works in game terms, like an instruction manual. There are other voices people use. Those are the three big ones in World of Darkness books. And not every book does a very good job of clearly using one of those voices at a time. So that can be a problem. Other books are really good at one or two of them, and a few of them are good at all of them. In thinking about the differentiating between the voices and how some of the books do a better job than others, that in-universe voice you mentioned speaks to the whole concept of unreliable narrator in the world of darkness, where in theory, when you sit down at your table, there is an objective truth that's sort of decided on by the storyteller, but there are all of these voices that inform what your character is likely to believe. A Ruha is likely to believe one thing about the nature of being a vampire. A redcap commoner who was trod under by the she is likely to believe another thing. The she who has done the trotting is likely to believe another thing. None of those are objectively true. And to communicate that, a lot of times World of Darkness books will do particular perspective writing. And for me, one of the most important things in a World of Darkness book that a lot of books do not take the time to do is if you are speaking in an authoritative voice to the storyteller saying, here's the way things are, golden rule that if you want, but these are the assumptions we're writing all of this on, it needs to be clear that's what you're doing. And if you're writing in an in-universe unreliable perspective, it needs to be clear that's what you're doing. And so for me, nothing kills my joy of a book faster than what's clearly meant to be unreliable narrator story hooks written in authoritative voice. It makes me kind of batty because I need something that at least informs me what are the assumptions my characters will bring as opposed to what of what is all of this written around. Right. And that's one of the big differences between, say, World of Darkness and D&D. World of Darkness does in-universe unreliable narrator D&D usually doesn't. Their settings can, but the core books never do. It's Honestly, it's a strength of World of Darkness that they even attempt it. The problem, like you said, happens when it is unclear what is in-universe voice and what is instruction manual voice. <laughs> Some of the authors do a really good job of navigating that. Phil Bricado is really good at that most of the time. I actually can't think of a time when I was confused about which voice he was using. There are a lot of different ways to approach the issue, but some work better than others. Yeah, and as an example, the C20 Player's Guide really opens with, we're about to do a whole bunch of universe stuff. This is all optional. This is all alternative. This book is a tool set. There was a bit of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge. We're writing this as though we were doing a Chronicles book. Take it as that. And it made it really easy to absorb the book and not have to kind of dissect, okay, what's going on here? By comparison, when I see that similar kind of all-over-the-place hook approach taken to something that exists in a specific place in the canon, it's a little bit more frustrating. Right. And like I was saying, one of the strengths of World of Darkness is that it tries to have a cohesive lore and metaplot 
Which is the context we're trying to discuss these books in. So one of the criteria we're both going to be looking at is how well does something describe the meta plot? How well does it fit into the meta plot? Where it doesn't fit into the meta plot, is it clear that this is character voice? Or is it one of those weird places where, I mean, we are talking about something that's roughly 30 years old? Uh, the World of Darkness is almost 30 years old. Changeling a little less so, closer to 25 now, but... Yeah. yeah, and Changeling has had a lot of different devs and a lot of different authors, and when you have that many people doing that many different things, stuff gets lost, people forget plot points, and Changeling has had a couple of weird focus pivots that probably didn't help the issue. <laughs> yeah, and one technique I find I like a lot, I haven't seen it much in Changeling, but I've seen it a lot in Vampire is sometimes an older edition has something in it you want to get rid of. Maybe it's because over time you just found out, oh, hey, this wasn't a super thrilling narrative and we want to, you know, do something more dynamic. Or maybe it's because it's bad, like culturally bad, damaging, ignorant in a way that no one realized when they first wrote it and you want to do better now. And Vampire, when it sort of backs away from something, whether just for game or for broader cultural reasons, They'll sort of address it in the text. They'll say, you know, oh, everyone thinks that the Chiasid are just changelings who have been embraced. But in reality, and here's this whole story, and here's how it's believable that this story happened, even though if you want to keep the preconceptions for your character from a previous book, you can do that, and this will fit in that continuity. I really appreciate that lift. From a technical standpoint, those are the things we are going to be looking for in the writing. From a slightly less technical and more aesthetic standpoint, we're going to be looking at whether or not a book was enjoyable to read. I don't know if I should speak for Victor, but as a perfectionist, I am taken out of my enjoyment by being confused and frustrated by writing, whether that's in a, in a role-playing game, book, or actually playing a role-playing game. There was one time I was at a table where a DM thought a 10-foot wood wall was going to hold back a siege. I was left with the only logical assumption, which was that the bad guys were idiots, which was clearly not intended, but I couldn't take the game seriously anymore. But also there are some of those cultural elements of this was okay when it was written, it's not okay now, or even it wasn't okay when it was written, but it was badly written, and it's still not okay now. But it is a decidedly squishier sort of category. I would agree with Simon on that. I get very taken out of something if I'm confused by it, or if characters or plot is built in a way that doesn't make sense. I can buy all kinds of kind of poorly thought out, emotionally driven, quote unquote, illogical decisions if they come from a place of truth. And that's a whole literary concept. Like, this is fiction. It isn't real. But fiction still comes from a place of truth, especially for a role playing game like World of Darkness, which several of the writers have said is 
rooted in a satirical interpretation of our world, I need World of Darkness to come from a place of truth. And so I'm okay with that if that's there. If I'm reading something and it just doesn't make sense or like a writer decided to explore a dynamic as a, oh, hey, I guess you could use this in a different way and I'll just like put the result of that in an explanation without there being some context for in universe, this also exists this other way. That really takes me out of the game. Like I need to be able to thought experiment what I'm reading and have it fit into the broader world. And I know a lot of people don't consume books that way, but my brain is constantly doing that while I'm reading an RP book. I stop regularly to just let those scenarios complete and then come back. So anything that makes that difficult to do is always a challenge. There are judgment calls sort of around that for me too. Because World of Darkness is aspirationally meant to be a commentary on the real world, and because it has cultural touchstones to things in the real world, Werewolf is my favorite easy example because all of the tribes are clearly meant to be either ethnic groups or sort of a weird take on feminism. There needs to be a kind of care taken in doing that. And again, this is a 30-year-old product. What was okay or even, you know, had that realisticness to it. In literature, there's a technical term, verisimilitude, which refers to a thing seeming to be real, a thing that is believable. Because when a thing has verisimilitude, it makes sense in context. It is believable in context. And if a cultural link to something in the real world doesn't have verisimilitude, like if the Black Furies are just written to be angry feminazis, that doesn't make sense. Like, they don't have a strong connection to the thing they're trying to invoke, and it causes a tonal dissonance in people who have ever actually read any feminist thought, and people who are also reading that role-playing book where they are described terribly. So for context, I had that exact experience of something not having verisimilitude when reading about the new dream in the C20 Player's Guide. The write-up for the new dream, it isn't actually poor writing. It's written well enough. It works in Changeling. It's an interesting story concept. But I am a bit of an anarcho-syndicalist. So when I read that write-up that we're in the parliament and we are born out of the anarchist cookbook, which is a weirdly not anarchist text, um, I've never met an actual anarchist who talks about it. But we justify all these things that we do in the parliament by also doing direct action, which is more of just a general activist thing. Taken on its face, if you don't have a background in anarchism, that is a story that fits in Changeling and works. But I couldn't parse it. I couldn't thought experiment it. And as much as I talk with people who will say things like, oh, no, World of Darkness isn't real politic. Satirical point aside, I can't take all the stuff that is me and just throw it away when I thought experiment these things. And that's why it's hard for people from a specific cultural context to use 
something that's basically written about them, but not from a true knowledge of them. It makes it very difficult to process it and to tell stories in your head with it and do those thought experiments. And I had that exact struggle. I mean, those things can really take you out of a game. And so another thing that I really look at for quality is what is the array of audiences that will reasonably be able to engage with this book? And the broader that array is while maintaining unique flavor and not getting into like cardboard accessibility, the higher the quality of a book is to me. And then the final category we're going to be looking at is the attractiveness of a book overall. Does the layout work? Is it neat? Is the art distracting from what's being said in the written part of the book? I am not uh, particularly conversant in visual arts, <laughs> so I, I imagine my opinions are going to sound a little bit rudimentary <laughs> compared to maybe Victor's. I mean, to be honest, I'm rarely going to get into the kind of critique that I would bring to, like, one of my art classes. At the end of the day, what makes role-playing game art work is, does it help bring me into the book, or does it pull me out of the book? And for these reviews, I'm going to endeavor to keep it at that level. This should give you an idea on how Simon and I will be approaching these review episodes, how we read these books, and really the purpose of this episode isn't for us to just sort of wax on about what we think is good. It's to help you get a sense of, does our opinion align with yours? If you don't care about most of the things we've talked about in the last 20, 25 minutes, then maybe skip our review episodes, and that's totally fine. We wanted to review these books, but we also didn't want to stick ourselves in the position of authoritatively saying what is good and what is bad. It was just what we look for, and if you find that you look for the same things, then maybe our views can help you pick out books that will be useful for you. So thank you for listening, and I hope that you get some use out of either the upcoming review episodes or our walk through the canon.